0: I thought maybe we'd go the other way around, end of the semester, smaller class, but everyone's coming, so that's good. We might even have some special guests, we'll see. Um, I know, and props, too. It's Let me start If there's asking if there's any questions from last time, or from anything up until now. I think last time we... Uh, finished up a discussion of ultrafast optics and time-resolved spectroscopy. And that was really our last, our last lecture of methods of spectroscopy. And so we have three lectures left. And basically each day we're going to talk about a different application. And uh, maybe on the last day we'll just, I'll just throw out a bunch of applications and we'll do a very quick survey without doing a whole lot of detail. Um, but today I think we have a full lecture on laser frequency stabilization. I think we have a lecture that can take the entire period. Um, And it's maybe not what you think of when you think of laser spectroscopy. Um, When we started, we thought of this canonical experiment where we're studying the energy levels of a material by scanning the frequency of a laser that's going into it and measuring the intensity that's coming out. Um, Here we're gonna use some of the properties of the laser line width and the interaction of the light and the matter to do something completely unrelated to studying the material that we're investigating with the laser. Um, We're gonna use the interaction of light and matter to uh, control the frequency of a laser. So we'll talk about some of the basics of any frequency locking scheme. Um, This is kind of important because if you go off into industry or you're doing research, this is the type of thing that you might be asked to do to set up an experiment um, or at the beginning of an experiment. And so it's useful to have a picture of, of what a typical uh, frequency locking scheme looks like. We'll talk about two different methods of frequency locking. One is locked into a reference cavity and one is locked into a molecular transition. We'll look at some of the pros and cons of each of those. Okay, so we'll start with laser locking. What do we mean by laser locking? Lasers, tend to, we tend to think of them as monochromatic, single frequency, very well-defined frequency. Um, we've seen that there are actual limits that prevent them from being truly monochromatic. The laser gain material has some bandwidth, or it has some line profile. And so the laser can lase at any frequency that sits under that, that gain profile. And the cavity that causes the laser light to build up also has some line width. We saw that when we looked at the details of a Fabri-Pro cavity, or some line width. And that allows a range of frequencies to oscillate basically simultaneously. Um, So we can sort of classify the deviations from a perfectly monochromatic source into two different categories, um, which we'll get to. High-frequency and low-frequency deviations. Um, Oftentimes it's necessary, though, to have a laser that behaves much more like a monochromatic single-frequency source than what is actually available off the shelf. And so sometimes you need to do things to force the laser to oscillate more in a more ideal state. Um, that's necessary anytime you're using the laser as basically a very sensitive timing mechanism. If you're using the laser wavelength or the laser frequency, if you like to measure time, then... Your uncertainty in the laser frequency or the spread or the jitter of the laser frequency is an uncertainty in anything that you measure using that as your time reference. Okay, so you can imagine a few examples of things that are very obvious needs for excellent time stability. The atomic clock comes to mind. Um, gravitational wave detectors I put on there. That's what a, a project that I work on or a field that I work in that requires better... Uh, Sensitivity than is possible from sort of any optical detector that's been built. So, um, laser frequency noise, all sorts of noise sources need to be suppressed. LIDAR, which is sort of the laser equivalent of radar, is a technique that we'll look at uh, Thursday, Wednesday, next time in class. And we'll see that the frequency of the laser is directly related to the parameters you measure and so defining that frequency better and better is, is allows you to make better and better measurements and then we may or may not have time to go into detail about optical cooling and trapping of atoms but we did talk earlier in the semester about um, about I think a gravitational gradiometer where we had atoms that were cooled and essentially cooled to the point where their um, thermal velocity was almost negligible over the time span of a second or so. And then they could be dropped and literally free fall in a gravitational field and know that their motion was almost entirely due to the gravitational acceleration on them and that could be used to measure the uh, local gravitational field. And so that's being done and the precision of how well you can do that is, is uh, basically limits how much money the oil companies do need to spend to find oil, um, how well you can understand the the structure of the Earth's mantle, all sorts of interesting things. So improving the sensitivity of those types of experiments um, is important as well. Okay, So there's uh, two different types of noise. We'll categorize noise into two different forms, basically high frequency and low frequency, and the stabilization techniques we'll classify into two different forms, active and passive. Okay, so let's look a little bit at laser frequency noise. If we have a gain curve for our laser material that is wider than the line width of the cavity that surrounds it, then the output of the laser will be dominated by the shape of this cavity. So the line width of the laser will come from that cavity line width. And if that cavity is not stable in time, if it's moving around, or if the atomic transition is moving around, then the relative position of this uh, this laser you know, this cavity line width relative to this atomic gain line width will jitter back and forth. And that has the effect of broadening out the observed frequency of the laser. So in much the same way that Doppler broadening and take the Lorentzian line profile of an atomic transition and when you add up all the different uh, Doppler-shifted line profiles you get a broadened transition that's what you see if you have the laser line jittering back and forth at a speed that's fast compared to your optical detector. So your detector, whatever that is, whether it's an interferometer that's measuring wavelength or it's a spectrum spectrometer that's using uh, grading or prism dispersion however you're measuring the wavelength or frequency if if this is moving back and forth fast relative to the speed of your instrument then what you're going to see is just the smeared out sort of convolution of of where that that line width has been as it moves back and forth instantaneously so that looks like a spread in the line width and I'll call that jitter I don't think To my knowledge, it's a specifically defined term, but I think people would talk about that as generally jitter. And we'll compare that to drift, which would be a low frequency change in the laser frequency. So a change on the core, on the timescale that's longer than your measurement device and your your, uh, detector. So typically drift is significant on the timescale of hours can also be significant in the timescale of seconds or minutes depending on, on what, how precisely you need to know what your laser frequency is. And so you could sort of visualize jitter as this moving of the instantaneous frequency back and forth causing the average or the observed profile to be an average and drift you can imagine if you plotted the laser frequency it was measured at one instant in time And then at later instances in time, and you saw it drifting. Of course, there's a region in between these two, um, but we'll just stick to these two extremes. Okay, so what are some of the reasons that the laser frequency is not stable? Um, One reason that it wouldn't be stable is any of the mechanisms that can cause the atomic... Line profile to broaden can also cause the um, the atomic gain profile of a laser to broaden or to shift in frequency. So you have things like Doppler broadening, collisional broadening. Those are things that broaden the line profile of a transition by causing the the natural line width of a particular atom to get shifted in frequency. And so, essentially all the atoms that make up your laser material will have their frequencies shifted and that will introduce frequency noise in the, in the laser output. There's a lot of other mechanisms um, that are not related to things we've talked about. A number of them are technical, things that can be suppressed with enough, uh, enough experimental work. Things like acoustic excitation, Remember that the uh, cavity length is what determines the position of the laser, laser cavities transmission lines So the spacing between transmission lines in a cavity is called the free spectral range We a homework problem that dealt with calculating the transmission through a cavity. And the transmission pattern repeats every free spectral range, which in frequency is given by C over 2L. So this spacing is C over 2L, and as the length changes, then the position and the spacing of these transmission lines moves around. So fluctuations in the length lead to changes in the resonant frequency of the cavity, and that changes the frequency of the output of the laser. When the cavity length changes by half a wavelength, that's when the transmission goes from this peak to this peak. So that means a change in length of a half a wavelength can move the cavity resonance by whatever the free spectral range is. Okay, so let's just find a typical example. Um, For a cavity that is, say, half a meter long, the free spectral range is 300 megahertz. So a tabletop cavity that you might have as your laser will have a free spectral range of about 300 megahertz. If one of the mirrors moves by a few hundred nanometers, that's enough to shift the resonant frequency by one free spectral range. So you can get hundreds of megahertz of frequency change in the laser output due to hundreds of nanometers of motion of the mirrors. So something like a megahertz per nanometer is the scale of the coupling between physical length change of a typical laser mirror and the change in the frequency of the output. So what are the things that can move a mirror around or change the length of a cavity? There's lots of them. We might think of a table like this as being a rigid body, but it's not. If you can see it, it's motion on a on a nanometer scale level, this actually looks a lot like jello it moves around a lot so you can have acoustic excitation you can have the mirrors vibrating due to acoustic coupling from the air um, or you can have a table drifting around um, due to all sorts of things you might, have, you might have cooling water in your system, maybe you have a dye laser and you have the dye flowing or you have um, a high-powered laser with water cooling, then if you have turbulence in that, turbulence adds mechanical vibrations to your table and everything that's touching the, uh, the mechanical structure, that be the, the tube or the, the flow channel. You can have electrical noise, like the 60 hertz line noise, that can appear through almost any possible coupling mechanism. So you might have one of your laser mirrors mounted on a piezo that can move back and forth when driven by a voltage. And if that piezo is attached to a driver that's attached to the wall plug, there's probably some motion at 60 hertz. You can have index of refraction changes due to air turbulence. You can have tidal forces, literally the change in the length of the ground, the strain of the ground. Um, due to the moon so literally all these things can warp and distort your optical table that your experiment sitting on on scales that are measurable if you are concerned with the absolute frequency of your laser output so those are all technical sources that means that if we are careful enough to suppress them, they can be suppressed so acoustic excitation, how would you deal with that? What are a couple ways? What's that? Uh, there's a better way involving the air. Yeah, take the air out, right? And you don't have acoustic excitation. You can also, and there's a less, less drastic method you can do, just quieting the room. Um, so, you, you know, usually there's one or two noise sources that are dominant, like the air conditioning duct or something like that. You can, You might be able to baffle that but uh, if you need to avoid acoustic excitation, you really need to remove the air from the, uh, from the chamber. Um, cooling water, obviously you want to avoid... If, if you don't have cooling water, that's not an issue, but if you have it, you want to avoid turbulent flow. So you want to make sure you operate in a laminar regime where there's less noise. Um, you want to separate as much as possible the pumps from the water and, and all the uh, as much of the flow from the region where the, the laser cavity is the best way to avoid 60 hertz line noise is move somewhere where the lines are at 50 hertz but that introduces its own problems otherwise all the electronics in the system need to be carefully designed to avoid passing 60 hertz line noise through some electronics may need to be DC powered or basically battery powered to avoid this Um, It's not uncommon to see photodetectors that are battery operated. One of the reasons is to avoid any of the 60 hertz line noise coupling. Um, The index of refraction changes due to air turbulence, like acoustic excitation. You can evacuate a chamber and put your laser or your cavity inside of that. But even if you do all these things, there's still going to be some fundamental noise that comes from something that you can't control. And that is spontaneous emission. So we know that a system populated um, with with an upper state population will have that upper state decay to the lower state via spontaneous emission. And that happens regardless of whether or not it's being pumped, whether there's an inversion. Um, Anytime there's an upper state population, it will decay to the lower state. So if you just have spontaneous emission, you can treat the electric field contribution to the, your laser output from the spontaneous emission as some vector with an arbitrary phase. So if you have one photon of spontaneous emission, you get a vector of you know, one unit length with an arbitrary phase. If you have two photons of spontaneous emission in any given measurement interval, you'd add two vectors with arbitrary phases. They add as random vectors. It's like the random walk. If you have n vectors, then their length the length of the sum is square root of n times the length of 1. Well, if that's just the effect of spontaneous emission, if you have stimulated emission as well, and you have most of the upper state population decaying to the lower state via stimulated emission, then most of the photons in your cavity are going to be those due to stimulated emission. Unlike spontaneous emission, those photons all have the same phase. They all have the same direction. They're coherent. All, this, all the quantum, quantum numbers, all the quantum, the quantum state of each photon is identical. And so, the electric field vector for each photon would add up coherently and constructively and produce this large field due to the stimulated emission. So what we end up having is we have, um, hopefully, ideally, most of the power coming out is due to the stimulated emission. There will always be some contribution from the spontaneous emission, that will have an arbitrary phase relative to the stimulated emission. So the total electric field vector has some uncertainty in amplitude and phase. If you think of the spontaneous emission, when it adds up in phase with the stimulated emission or out of phase, that's going to affect the amplitude. When it adds up, let's say in quadrature phase, or at 90 degrees, in this direction or in this direction, it affects the phase the angle of this total electric field vector and so you have some fundamental source of phase noise that's this and amplitude noise, that's the length of the vector that you can't get rid of and that gives rise to laser frequency noise and laser power noise or laser amplitude noise there's another form of noise that's kind of interesting um, it's called pointing noise it's It's the angular deviation of the laser beam. And like frequency and amplitude noise, there's all sorts of technical things that can cause this. If your mirrors are moving or tilting in time, you're going to get pointing noise. But you'll also have this fundamental source that comes from spontaneous emission. So here's a plot of the TEM00 profile. In a cavity. This would be the um, intensity, the transverse, let's see, the intensity in the transverse plane of light circulating in a cavity that's in the lowest order for meet Gaussian mode. So for most lasers, um, this is sort of the, the nominal beam profile inside the cavity. And there's oftentimes distortions that cause the profile to deviate from this, but um, certainly if you're interested in. Uh, high-stability lasers, you typically want them operating in a single lowest-order mode that looks like this. So higher-order modes, you can write down, in case this isn't familiar, the lowest-order mode has a profile, spatial profile, that looks like Like this. That's the Gaussian that's plotted. The higher order modes have higher order polynomials that multiply this Gaussian distribution. So a TEM10 mode is the next higher order mode. It also has this exponential bell-shaped amplitude but that gets multiplied by a linear odd function so that on the left side we have a and the right hand side we have a positive amplitude right, so this is x times e to the minus x squared over omega squared so what this physically represents this is the intensity profile for light if you like, in sort of a ray diagram picture, the TEM00 mode basically represents light, which is propagating back and forth on axis, in a cavity that has the mirrors match the radii of curvature for the phase front here and here of that mode. And then the TEM10 mode, you, you can think of that as being generated when there's light that's off axis. So without going into all the details of projection of a, of a phase front or a wave front onto an orthogonal basis set, we can just describe the 1-0 as produced by off-axis light. Further off-axis, the more power is in this 1-0 mode. Okay, so in a laser that's operating in the 0-0 mode, the output profile should look like this. And then you have some spontaneous emission that gets added to that. Spontaneous emission goes in all directions. All right, so here's your laser material. You get spontaneous emission coming out the sides. You get some that goes along the cavity. Right, and that's, that's the stuff that's going to add to the laser. And if it's along the optical axis, so that it adds, in the, that it contributes to the zero zero mode then it's going to alter the amplitude and phase of this mode. But if it's off-axis a little bit, it's going to excite this TEM 10 mode and other higher-order modes. So you get some light in these higher-order modes due to spontaneous emission. They have an arbitrary phase, a random phase. And so when they add up with the TEM 0.0 mode, as I've drawn it here with these particular phase relationships, this right side Fields add up On the left side They sort of subtract And the effect is To take this Gaussian profile And to shift it to the right. right if we add 180 degree phase shift To the 1, 0 mode Then This side becomes positive This side becomes negative And it shifts The TM, 0, 0 mode To the left okay, And of course in Any phase in between You get a different A different position For The bulk of the power Coming out of your laser so the effect is that the the angle of the the beam coming out of the laser appears to be jittering due to a very uh, what may be a very constant well-defined noise-free beam plus some noise that affects the pointing okay so the techniques for that we'll describe as uh, techniques techniques of frequency stability for the large part, can be used to stabilize all these different mechanisms, all these different um, effects, amplitude noise, frequency noise, and pointing noise. And the techniques sort of all involve the same idea, which is you compare the laser frequency to a reference. That's how you measure the laser's frequency. Right? You can't measure an optical frequency directly. You can only compare it to another frequency. Um, So we compare it, we get a measure of how far off it is from our reference. So here's the laser output. Here's a reference frequency, we compare them. The difference we call the error signal. And so if you're trying to make the laser frequency match this reference frequency, the difference between those is how much error you have in the laser frequency. And we feed that back to the laser with some negative gain. So negative means uh, negative feedback. Neil? Uh, I don't, I don't measure the lasers. So there's different ways. And we'll, so that's, we'll talk about that. So I'm starting with the block diagram and then we'll describe in much more detail how you do this. Okay, but the short answer is, here's a laser cavity or I'm sorry, here's the transmission of a cavity. You shine a laser onto that cavity, and let's say its frequency is right here, you get some transmission. Um, And as you tune the laser, the transmission builds up and becomes a maximum. You know that your laser has the same frequency as one of the transmission peaks of the cavity. And that's a way of measuring the frequency of the laser relative to a cavity. Now you may not know what frequency that absolute frequency that is, but if you can produce a cavity as a reference that is more stable than the laser you're using, then you can assume that the frequency of the reference cavity is, is a better frequency reference than that of the laser and you can transfer its frequency stability onto the laser using this type of feedback mechanism. Okay, so uh, negative feedback, how many people are familiar with negative feedback? So the idea is, um, easiest perhaps uh, example of negative feedback is the thermostat in a room. You set it to 70 degrees, there's the thermometer. If it's below 70 degrees, right, it says it's too cold, so it sends a signal to the temperature controller, the heater or the air conditioner, it says heat up. So when it's too cold, it tells it to heat up. That's why it's negative. It's always changing the temperature in the opposite direction. Of course, if it gets too hot, then it says, okay, it's too hot, cool off. That's negative feedback. It's always telling the, the system over here to change in a way that's opposite to the, to the error signal that's being measured. Okay, so we can um, understand a little bit about how we can suppress noise in a negative feedback loop by looking at this block diagram we'll describe the frequency of the free-running laser as F sub F. So frequency of free-running laser. The frequency of our reference we'll call F sub R. And because this is a very general block diagram, really these could be any types of signals. I and mean, this could be this could represent the temperature of the room, and this could be the temperature of the set point. It could be any sort of uh, feedback control system. This could be the speedometer in a car and this could be the s- setting point on the cruise control in our case it's just a laser frequency so right here some signal gets added to this, that changes the frequency of the laser we'll come back to that in a minute and that produces what I've called F sub I I don't know what the S stands for I made this slide several years ago frequency of the source let's call it So the frequency of my source gets compared to the frequency of the reference. Take the difference, so assuming I have some way of comparing them and getting the difference between those two values, that's my error signal, call that delta F. I then amplify it so G is some gain, This means multiply it by some amount, G, and this may be a frequency dependent gain. You can teach whole classes on control theory that describe how the gain has to be different at different frequencies, but for our purposes, let's just assume it's a constant. This error signal gets multiplied by this gain to give us this control signal here, which is minus g, that was the, the amplification factor, times delta f, which was our error signal. So an error signal is what you measure. A control signal is what you feed back into the system. So that goes into my system. That's used to somehow tune the laser. So assume your laser has some mechanism that allows you to change its frequency. Ideally, some way you can do it electronically, and you can send this signal into that frequency actuator and produce an offset to the free-running frequency that's proportional to this control signal. Okay. So, for our purposes, let's assume that this uh, the, the frequency offset that gets added is, is identical to the control signal. Okay, So G represents the gain of this electronic amplifier over here and also contains any gain or attenuation of this this actuator here. Then we can look at this point here as a node and in the steady state two things. The um, contributions coming into the node have to equal the contributions coming out of the node familiar with that from uh, Kirchhoff's current rules for uh, electrical circuits. And so what we have coming in is the frequency of the free-running laser and that gets added to the control signal minus g times delta f and delta f is the reference frequency minus the source frequency. So that's the frequency that comes out of here and that has to equal f sub s right, by definition in the steady state the frequency at this point at one moment in time has to be the same as it is at a later moment in time once that signal is propagated through the control loop okay, so this is after propagating through the control loop once and this is what it was before and in the steady state those have to be the same so we can solve for s sub s All right, so we have, yeah, so we bring F sub S over to this side, and we have a 1 minus G. We divide both sides by 1 minus G. We get this expression. You can note that if we let G go to 0, it has the effect of breaking the loop so that there is no feedback. If that's the case, this expression tells me the source frequency equals the free-running frequency, which is what we should have. In the limit of high gain, so that's the limit of no gain, in the limit of high gain, where g goes to infinity, this one term becomes negligible. This free-running frequency becomes negligible. That means the source frequency is not going to depend on the free-running frequency. And what we're left with is minus g over minus g times the frequency of the reference. So the source frequency becomes the frequency of the reference in the limit of high gain. And so, as G becomes large, I can neglect this 1. If I don't neglect this, I can get a little better approximation to what the source frequency is doing as the gain becomes large. And I get the reference frequency minus the free-running frequency divided by g. Okay, so any fluctuations in the frequency, in the free-running frequency gets suppressed by a factor of g. Okay, so they never completely go away, but as I turn the gain up higher and higher, I can cause the fluctuations to become smaller and smaller. But they still change the pre running frequency? Yeah, so there's something called oscillations that occur when the gain becomes high. What happens is there's some time lag for the signal to get around this loop. Right? And at high enough frequencies, if that time lag introduces 180 degree phase shift on your signal, then this goes from being negative feedback to positive feedback. Right? So think about, well, the classic example of this is when someone gets up on stage and they turn the microphone on and you hear the squealing. Right? What they have is a microphone amplifying the sound and then there's loudspeakers. If those loudspeakers produce a sound that gets detected by the microphone, you get a buildup. Right? And if the sound produced by the speakers is in phase, I mean, after, yeah, if there's a sound picked up by the microphone and after traveling around that loop once, it's producing a sound that's in phase with the original source, those, those round trips are going to add up in phase and you'll get oscillation. If they're out of phase, you get noise-canceling headphones. So what happens is, there's some fixed time lag for a signal to go around the system that corresponds to a particular frequency where there's a 180-degree phase shift. So if you have negative gain at low frequencies, at some high frequency, your gain becomes positive. You no longer have negative feedback, you have positive feedback. Instead of subtracting noise here, you're adding noise. And at that frequency, you get oscillation. And that's why, and we're not going to go into it uh, any more than this today, but um, the gain has to be frequency-dependent. So that gain is usually made to have some DC value. And then to roll off, so this is a log plot, a log log plot. the roll off so that at some frequency where the gain is equal to one, which we call the unity gain frequency for obvious reasons. For frequencies above that, there is no gain, there is no feedback and there's no suppression of noise. At frequencies below that, there is gain, there is suppression of noise. And ideally, you'd like this unity gain frequency to be as high as possible. That gives you suppression over the largest bandwidth of noise sources. And physically, what that means is your frequency control loop needs to be physically as short as possible and have as few components in it that produce phase lags, which is equivalent to a time delay. Does anybody have noise-canceling headsets? Okay, I think for noise-canceling headsets, this, is, this unity gain frequency is only at about a kilohertz or so, which is why it works for suppressing jet engine noise. But you're still always going to be able to hear the person next to you talking to some extent because it, you know human voice, I think a telephone has about a three kilohertz bandwidth. You know, so most of the, most of the uh, sound of a human being talking can be described within the first 3 kilohertz. You eliminate the first kilohertz of that, you get rid of a lot of the sound, uh, some of the higher frequencies though would still couple through those noise cancelling headsets, and we'll see plots of uh, frequency stabilized laser noise that show that at higher frequencies it's just, it's just not possible to stabilize the noise. Okay, so um, let's talk about different ways that you can compare the laser frequency to a reference. How do you physically do that? Um, I already mentioned an optical cavity. An optical cavity has well-defined frequencies, resonant frequencies. Those resonant frequencies, remember, physically what they are is they're just frequencies at which you can get standing waves inside the cavity. Right, so an integer number of half-wavelengths can fit inside the cavity. That only occurs at certain lengths of the cavity, or for a given length of the cavity, it only occurs at certain frequencies or wavelengths of the light. Okay, So those frequencies are determined by the optical path. I guess uh, the wavelength is C over NF. And we need an integer number of half wavelengths. fit inside the cavity length so the resonant frequency of the cavity is 2nl over mc so m is just an integer for different integers you'll have different resonant frequencies those are the different free spectral ranges right 2 and c are constants and so the index of refraction and the length of the cavity are the two things that determine what frequencies a cavity's resonant at. If you evacuate the cavity, right, you eliminate these fluctuations in the index of refraction, and then it's only the length of the cavity that affects the resonant frequencies. Okay, so I, we'll look at first methods to minimize the frequency fluctuations of the resonant frequency of a cavity, and we'll talk about how you measure that, or how you compare the laser frequency to that. Okay, so LIGO, the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory, is an experiment that needs uh, very low frequency noise for the lasers, and so reference cavities are used to stabilize those lasers. Um, Here's a picture cutaway and a picture of a LIGO reference cavity a couple things this is an INVAR rod it's a type of glass with a very low thermal expansion coefficient so it's a tube with mirrors glued on the end so rather than just mounting two mirrors on a table there's a tube there that provides um, sort of a, a monolithic structure it allows the whole thing to be isolated from uh, say ground motion um, the whole thing can be suspended from a pendulum for instance, and that way the uh, ground motion doesn't couple into relative motion well into absolute motion of the the system and because this is a rigid spacer it's very difficult to produce differential motion at the ends which you could easily do on a table um, the next thing is the material has n- I don't quite want to say a zero uh, thermal expansion coefficient, but it's essentially what it is. Let me describe that in a little more detail. uh, If you plot the length versus temperature of typical materials, it's going to have some increasing length as a function of temperature and the slope of this alpha is the thermal expansion coefficient. So there's a handful of materials that can be engineered such that although they have a changing length as a function of temperature there are at least points in which they can be operated where that slope is zero for small perturbations around the slope. We so say the thermal expansion is zero. It doesn't mean the length doesn't change as a function of temperature; just that it's, there's no first-order dependence. So Invar is one that has—it's a glass that has a uh, zero thermal expansion coefficient at room temperature. There's other. There's a number of commercial products with different uh, trademarked names, but um, so that's what this is. The whole thing's inside of a vacuum chamber. Right, so, if you think about how the length of this cavity could change, right, like there's no acoustic or very little acoustic coupling because it's in a high vacuum. Uh, there's no fluctuations in the index of refraction, again, because it's in high vacuum. Mechanical coupling from ground noise to differential motion of the mirrors is difficult because it's held together by this rigid spacer. And so, the next one is thermal expansion of the spacer spacer becomes an issue but it's in vacuum right? so external temperature changes can only couple to this rod through radiative mechanisms right? there's no conduction, there's no convection through the vacuum and so then there's these gold cylinders there's sheets of gold around this and those act as, as thermal reflectors so you go camping and you have that emergency cape that's just a thin mylar film or whatever, it's basically the same premise and the infrared radiation just reflects from this and so it, it isolates the center from the outside and there's several layers of it, so you can imagine that the uh, length of this cavity is, is much more stable than the length of whatever the cavity on the commercial laser is that, that is bought to use for this system and LIGO doesn't exactly use a commercial laser, but it's, it's sort of a one-off of a commercial laser with a lot of modifications. Um. Advanced LIGO, which is, so what I just showed is actually a working part of a, of a detector right now. Um, there's plans to upgrade it. And the laser for advanced LIGO, the schematic is here. Um, there are external reference cavities. Here's an external reference cavity shown here. Um, here's another one. There's a low-power laser that gets um, that's injected into a medium and a high-power stage that amplifies it. And then the output of that is um, referenced against these different cavities to generate a feedback signal that goes back and adjusts the frequency of the low-power seed laser. So there's a couple different things going on here. One is we have these reference cavities that are shown. There's other reference cavities that aren't shown here that aren't mechanical spacers but are four kilometer long uh, arms to this interferometer. Then there's this separation of the different uh, power stages of the laser. So there's a very low power but very frequency stable oscillator here. This is called a non-planar ring oscillator. What it is, it's basically a little chip. A chip about the size of a dime, and light bounces back and forth with total internal reflection on the surfaces. So unlike most of the lasers that we've considered where you have two widely separated mirrors and some gain material in between, all of this is integrated into a single package, um, and there's very little very little space for differential motion, and there's very few coupling mechanisms that can cause this uh, laser frequency to, to jitter. And then, that's amplified in these higher power stages. So one of the problems with having this, this little uh, non-planar ring oscillator is that there's not much area to extract heat, and that's one of the problems with uh, high power lasers. So You need to extract heat, you need large area, you need water cooling oftentimes. Um, in fact, these have water cooling. So you have issues with water turbulence and such. So those high-power amplification stages are separated from the oscillator. And as a result, the free-running noise of the laser, which is shown here in, in blue, plotted as a function of frequency, can be suppressed by one, two, three, about four orders of magnitude. And this is the Let's see. This green one is what's called the in-loop frequency noise. And so in this control loop here, here's our laser. Here's our comparison with a reference cavity. And here's the feedback. Inside that control loop, meaning say at a point right here, the noise is decreased from this free running point to this, this point here. Once you get outside of the loop over here, the noise jumps up. Any thoughts on why that might be? Let's consider all these different optics, all these steering mirrors, these cavities, everything that the laser touches, that the laser beam touches. And imagine that they have some mechanical noise in them. They're moving around a little bit. If you move a mirror around, that changes the phase of the light reflecting off of it. You can think of it as adding a Doppler shift to the frequency Or you can think of it as shortening and increasing the path length To change the phase that way So if you change the phase of the light here When that goes and gets compared to the reference frequency That noise you added gets fed back and cancelled out So at any point inside of this loop If you try to add noise The servo acts to suppress that But any noise that's added outside the loop is never gets seen by the servo, and it never gets suppressed. So any optics out here, outside of the loop, that add noise will start to build up from that in noise point. And then you notice that high frequencies. uh... The negative feedback. Oh, yeah. So there's several stages of isolation here. There's these rigid reference cavities that are used to feedback and those are the primary frequency stability. These cavities have um, very low, low frequency noise but they do have high frequency noise, primarily from the fact that this rigid spacer has a temperature. That means it's moving around and that produces um, ringing of the the modes of oscillation of the mechanical device. So it's like a bell. So it has all these relatively high frequency modes. If you took a piece of glass and you hit it and you listened to what frequencies it rung at, it'd be generally high frequency because it's a stiff material. So at high frequencies, it has noise. And so it's not a very good reference. At high frequencies, it works really well at low frequencies. Well, it turns out that there are other cavities in the system Here's the laser, and let me call this the uh, this is generally called the pre-stabilized laser. That means think of everything shown in this picture over here, and call that the laser. So it has some frequency stabilization built in. And then if we consider the light that comes out of that, in LIGO, there are these four kilometer long arm cavities, these are high finesse arm cavities and the mirrors are suspended from pendula so that they're um, very stable, they're not easily excited by ground motion. Because they're four kilometers apart, they're actually moving and drifting, uh, their, their relative separation is drifting on the order of microns over the course of minutes. But their um, instantaneous their high frequency noise is very small because there's so much effort put into isolating them from ground disturbances and acoustic disturbances and all this. So this four kilometer long cavity actually serves as a very good high frequency reference. So that's fed back. I guess that's fed back to here and is used to suppress high frequency noise whereas these reference cavities are used to suppress low frequency noise. So you get different regions of this plot are governed by different reference cavities. <coughs> but at a high enough frequency, um, the stabilized laser noise and the free-running laser noise converge. That's In this plot, it's about 100 kilohertz. Okay, and what that 100 kilohertz corresponds to 10 microseconds of delay time. And so these these feedback loops have delays in them that limit how high a frequency you can can feed back. If you have a 4 kilometer long cavity and you have a photodetector here and a signal that has to travel 4 kilometers, that's one example of of a phase delay. So, how do you use these cavities to generate an error signal? How do you Compare the laser frequency to the reference of the cavity. So let's look at just general superposition of two waves. So E1 and E2 produce some total electric field. Each of these has an amplitude and a phase. So let E1 be the amplitude of field one, phi1 be the phase. Likewise for E2 for uh, field two. Then when you add these two fields together. On a square law detector, on a photodetector that measures intensity, not electric field, what you see is some total intensity, or the field squared, the magnitude of the field squared. If you take this expression and square it, you get an E1 squared and E2 squared, and then you get this cross term. Right, well, this cross term has a magnitude that depends on the relative phases. Right, and If you take this times the complex conjugate of this, you get a phi1 minus a phi2. You take this times the complex conjugate of that, you get phi2 minus phi1, you add up those two things, you get a cosine. Okay, so you have a detected intensity that depends on the intensity of the two fields, and this cross term, which depends on the phase difference of the two. Okay, so if you can filter out these terms, which are basically DC, and you consider the phase of each of these fields to be time-dependent, then this term right here is going to be an AC term. It's going to be changing in time. Right? As the phases change, uh, the magnitude of this term changes. The magnitude of these terms don't when the phase changes. Okay, so if you filter off the DC terms and you're left with the AC term, that's going to be a measure of how much the phase difference between the two beams is varying. So, if you remember, I think last time it was, we described frequency modulation as the sum of a carrier field. And here I'm plotting the magnitude at a particular frequency, so the Fourier magnitude of a field And then these components at higher and lower frequency I'm calling sidebands. And because there are different frequencies, these these electric field vectors oscillate at higher and lower frequency than this one, so they drift out of phase and in phase with the carrier and modulate its phase. Remember the movie that had the the vector going back and forth? That was uh, phase or frequency modulation. It can be represented by these... um, this picture by the carrier, and then these sidebands. And if we think about what the transmission of a Fabry-Pro cavity looks like, then if we send light that has frequency modulation on it into the Fabry-Pro cavity, we can arrange for the carrier to lie on resonance so that it's transmitted, and the sidebands to be off resonance going to do a couple things. It means the carrier gets transmitted, the sidebands don't. So what happens to the transmitted light? What happens to... The, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, so the phase modulation gets stripped off of it. That's passive frequency stabilization. The other thing that happens is, if these, if these sidebands don't get transmitted, where do they go? They get reflected. So if you look at the reflected light... What you have is the field from these two sidebands when it's on resonance. When it's not on resonance, you also have the field of the carrier. When it's not on resonance, you get the carrier reflecting as well. Then you have the carrier and the sidebands. Those are the two fields that you're comparing. And you can look at the phase difference between them. And a little bit of math and a couple plots should clarify how that gives an error signal. So here's our expression for the measured intensity from the sum of two fields. Here's an expression that I believe we've derived when we talked about um, Fabry-Pro cavities. I'm not gonna derive it again, but this is the expression for the reflected field from a cavity. So this is the field directly reflected from the front mirror that has a field reflectivity of R. Assuming both mirrors have a field reflectivity of R, there's reflection from the front mirror and then there's this term, which represents light that got into the cavity, was resonant in the cavity, and then leaked out of the front mirror. And it adds for the directly reflected light. Okay, so if you're off resonance, so if the light, if you set up two mirrors, you don't make any special arrangements so that the wavelength of the light is resonant in here. What you'd expect is that you hit a high reflector mirror, the light gets reflected. Right? The second mirror has no effect. Essentially, this second term is 0. As it becomes resonant, the light builds up inside and the transmission of the light from the inside leaking out becomes more significant. This term becomes more significant. And if we look at what this term is doing. You can see that it's a complex number because it has this phase shift both in the numerator and the denominator. When it's on resonance 2 omega L over C, this becomes some integer multiple of 2 pi. That's just the round trip phase. So when it's on resonance these terms become real. When it's not resonance these terms aren't real. So if we plot the magnitude if we plot the magnitude and the angle, or the phase, of the light reflecting from a cavity, and I'm looking at this now and I'm realizing that this actually has a high reflective end mirror and a front mirror of reflectivity R. Okay, and if that's the case, light can never transmit through. Right, it either reflects from the front mirror or it reflects from the back mirror. But It always reflects because this is a high reflector. As a result, the magnitude of the reflected light is always equal to the magnitude of the input light. When it's not resonant, it reflects from the front mirror. When it is resonant, it reflects from the back mirror. And as a result, when it's resonant, the light travels a greater distance. Right? It doesn't reflect from the front mirror. It goes to the back mirror. Gets an extra phase, so the phase changes. So as it approaches resonance, the phase shift, or the angle, traced out by that blue line. That's just the complex part of this expression. What you can see is right around resonance, there's a sharp change in the phase as a function of the laser frequency, or if you like the cavity length, whichever of those parameters is changing. Okay, so, if we have a detected intensity, so here's the laser. We have a photo detector that detects the reflected light, and we're detecting the reflected intensity, um, but we're detecting the reflected intensity for the carrier, and for the sidebands, which are at different frequencies, and therefore get different phase shifts. So there's going to be this term that looks like cosine phi1 minus phi2 in my intensity. Okay, so if, say, phi1 is the phase of the carrier and phi2 is the phase of a sideband, then their difference is going to be oscillating at some RF frequency. So omega, this is omega demodulation, but if there's some uh, frequency difference, omega, omega times T gives the phase difference between those two beams. There, must, there could also be some fat static phase difference due to the phase shift that the carrier gets on reflection relative to what the sidebands get on reflection. Okay. So if the phase difference between the two beams It's some static phase difference plus phase difference due to their frequency difference. Then I can write phi 1 minus phi 2 as this expression. And I have, yeah, a sine times a cosine. I can expand that as sine of A minus B and sine A plus sine B. use trig identities to expand that in terms of the product of the arguments. And I get a term that looks like um, that looks like the phase difference here plus the phase difference there. That's this term. And I get one that looks like the phase difference here minus the phase difference there. Well, if the phase difference between those two beams, if this cosine is oscillating at omega t, and I multiply my detected signal by sine omega t, then I get a term where the omega t's cancel out. I feel like I'm skipping over a step here. Let me draw this out in a little more detail. Here's the laser. phase modulator places frequency sidebands on the light. So it phase modulates the light. That light reflects from a cavity and then I pick it off and detect it with a photodetector. So this is the detected signal. And the, point, the part that's missing on the slide is that the signal that drives this phase modulator, the sinusoidal signal that drives the phase modulator, also drives a mixer. So a mixer means multiplication. Multiply this signal times this signal. These are two electrical signals. And the output is low-pass filtered. So you may recognize this as a lock-in amplifier. We had a homework problem on this. that said show that a detected signal, when compared to a reference signal in a lock-in amplifier, will give, um, as the output, a signal that is the magnitude of the detected signal at the reference frequency. And that's what this math is showing. So our detected signal has a frequency component due to the phase difference, which is at the frequency of the modulation and also has some static phase shift due to the phase shift introduced by the cavity on the carrier relative to the sidebands, which see different points on this plot. And when that's low-pass filtered, these high-frequency components disappear. And for small static phase shifts, sine phi s is about equal to phi s. And the demodulated signal is proportional to the static phase shift, which is plotted here, which is proportional to the laser frequency. Okay, so one way of thinking about it is the sidebands are out here where there's essentially no frequency shift or no phase shift on reflection, but the carrier is near resonance where there is a phase shift, and that phase shift is what's being measured. Okay, and clearly, there when the phase shift goes to zero, that's when the car- when the carrier is on resonance, the phase shift goes to zero. Okay, so this blue curve is the static phase shift that we're measuring and it's also our error signal. It's what we're measuring, it's our error signal. And In this region right here, the error signal is linear and passes through zero at the, at the operating point. That's what you want for a reference signal. So that's a good error signal. Okay. So if you're interested in reading more about this, there's an excellent paper um, that basically describes how to do what's called Pound-Drever-Hall locking. It's a technique of locking to a cavity. Um, these are just some plots from the paper. I'll, I'll, I've talked about most of this. An alternative way of thinking about this is if this is the reflected intensity as a function of frequency, this is when it's on resonance. There's, if you have a, now a, a cavity with finite reflectivity end mirrors, when it's on resonance, it can transmit the light. When it's off resonance, it reflects more of the light. So as you modulate the laser frequency, you change the reflected intensity. And depending on which side of of resonance you're on, the intensity either changes in phase with the frequency modulation or out of phase. And so by measuring that relative phase, um, you can tell which side of, of resonance you're on and drive the system onto resonance. There's the picture, which matches what I drew on the board. And there's a plot of the intensity dipping to zero on resonance, and the phase cycling through 360 degrees as it passes through resonance. Okay, so that's all relative frequency stabilization. It's comparing the laser frequency to a cavity, and designing the cavity so that it's more stable than the laser. Right. Um, there's also times where you need absolute frequency stabilization. So maybe the, the, the laser noise isn't so important, but the ability to reproduce a standard anywhere in the world is. Okay, so measurement of the meter is based on, well, for a while it was based on the wavelength of a Heaney laser. So what you'd like to do is know that your Heaney is operating at the same frequency as the Heaney that was used to produce the standard. Right, so um, locking it to a cavity wouldn't help because the cavity could have any arbitrary length and it's, the laser is just fixed to that. Um, but there are ways to lock to something that is has an absolute frequency. That's a molecular transition or an atomic or molecular transition. We know that there are certain energy levels, that those are defined by physical properties of the material. Atoms, molecules are reproducible. So a hydrogen atom here is the same as a hydrogen atom there. So you can lock the laser frequency onto a cavity transition. So if we know how to measure a transition by scanning the laser frequency through a transition, if we observe the transition. We just need some way of knowing which side of the transition we're on, feeding back, and the rest of the locking loop is pretty much the same as uh, that of cavity locking. Okay, so one of the more commonly used molecular transitions occurs... Well, one of the more commonly used molecules for absolute frequency locking is iodine. Okay, so a curie properly guessed that this was a laser frequency stabilizer this is an iodine cell this has molecular iodine in it it's a low pressure vapor about 10 to the minus 3 tor okay so nothing special that's just pretty much the same iodine you'd get if you took a dropper of iodine from your medicine cabinet and vaporized it um, but iodine has a spectrum this is its spectrum across the visible and it it has almost, a, it almost looks like a continuous spectrum across the visible. In fact, it's discrete lines, but it has so many uh, rotational vibrational transitions um, that happen to occur in the, in the visible that almost the entire visible spectrum is filled with transitions. Here's a blow-up of a uh, spectrum measured around the... Uh, Green second harmonic generation, second harmonic frequency of Neodymium Yag. You can see these narrow lines. Each one of these lines, then, when you examine it further with Doppler free techniques, actually sees a whole number of hyperfine components. Okay, so what we have is a whole bunch of lines throughout the visible spectrum, which is good, because it means almost any visible laser that you're interested in using, even if you can only tune it for a little bit, you can likely tune it through a large enough region so that you can find one of the iodine lines. And then, the lines have very fine structure, meaning you have a very narrow frequency reference or very stable frequency reference in which to lock it. That's why iodine is commonly used. So here's a couple experiments locked to iodine. Got There's the iodine cell. Um, here's a laser. There's a phase modulator. There's actually several phase modulators. You can see the, RF, the, the coaxial cables that feed an RF signal. And there's iodine cells. You can actually see here that there are several lasers. There's a laser, there's a laser. Um, so actually, the system's almost symmetric. These are Faraday isolators. And what's going on here is each laser is independently being locked. To the iodine cell, and then their frequencies are being compared. Okay, so the idea is that if you lock to the same absolute frequency reference, then you should have very little uh, little frequency noise between the two lasers. Way to generate an absolute standard. So they're basically measuring uh, two lasers. Here's a picture of an iodine cell that I'd put into the slide before I had this this one. Uh, you might ask why I have this iodine cell. Thank you. Um, Because there's a new lab being offered, Physics 220E, which is a graduate optics lab that will do some absolute frequency stabilization. There will probably be two or three experiments from this course, or relative to this course, that are integrated into that. There will be some laser experiments, some other general optics experiments. It will probably be starting a year from now, next spring. So if you're going to be around then, or you're interested in taking a laboratory course, this will be the first graduate physics lab being offered. And so we're building up our stock right now of stuff. Too late. (laughs) Sorry. So let me just, we don't have a lot of, we're already over time, but um, I don't want to spend time on this next time. So let me just flip through a couple things. The transition for the transmitted field and the, the phase of the transmitted field, going through a molecular transition, looks exactly like that going through a cavity. The only difference is it only happens at a specific frequency, it's not repetitive. So, just the reference is different, but the rest of the the circuitry is the same. Um, Interesting thing that's been done is a phase modulator is put into a cavity. This is at the uh, National Institute for Standards and Technology in Colorado by Jan Hall. And modulated at a frequency such that after each round trip, the sidebands get sidebands put on them, those get sidebands and this comb of frequencies get built up. Then you have a whole bunch of laser frequencies, any one of which you can lock to some, some atomic transition. And once you've locked one of these, then every one has a fixed um, frequency relationship to that one, so you've stabilized all those frequencies. And so this was important because it actually produced a spectrum that could allow the visible wavelength to be compared to the microwave wavelength. So The separation of these could be in microwaves and that separation could be compared to frequency standards in the microwave and the absolute frequency could be used in the visible so it allowed like microwave um, like the atomic clock to be used as a reference at optical frequencies so this won the nobel prize in uh, 2000 about about 2000 i don't recall exactly so must, yeah well this is this is one of the papers from the author molecular iodine clock, and we're not going to have time to go through it, so, so we'll end there, and if you have questions about this um, there's some references listed in the, in the reference uh, slide in the end of the chapter that, that may be useful if you have to do this yourself in the lab